to John chapter 18 once again. John chapter 18. And we continue our study of the book of John and uh, this series of messages entitled The Hour Has Come. And we've talked about a number of different areas in the hour which had come for the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, be the sacrifice on Calvary's cross and some of the events that led up to it, the betrayal, the denial. Uh, We talked about the truth, uh, a number of areas. This morning we want to talk about the kingdom uh, here in John chapter 18. And uh, we want to notice that uh, uh, Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath from the Father's hand on behalf of sinners. Uh, That means on behalf of every one of us here today. Uh, In the process, we find the Lord encountering both religious and political leaders uh, in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate was the Roman uh, curator uh, who tried Jesus Christ for the accusations uh, offered by the uh, Jewish high priestly band. And reading about Pilate, I I found that he was kind of a, a wannabe king. Uh, he was one, a wannabe king. He wasn't really uh, in a position as a king, uh, but his position as Roman procurator of uh, Judea did not make him a major player in the Roman Empire. So he kind of was trying to get some notoriety here uh, in this uh, event. The emperor appointed provincial governors uh, throughout the uh, empire to assist in carrying out the Roman authority and for the larger provinces such as Syria, a member of the Roman Senate would be appointed as the governor and often these governors would exercise some authority over some lower level uh, procurators uh, throughout the empire and Pi- Pilate was kind of the second tier uh, Roman leadership uh, since being governor of the small province of Judea did not make him of kingly stature. But Pilate was uh, made the most of his position. Uh, he had aligned himself with a powerful procurator of uh, Roman legion, a senator by the name of Sejanus, who uh, promoted an anti-Jewish policy throughout the empire. And because of this, there was no love lost between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Uh, he had a track record of irritating the Jews uh, by his exercise of power. And one of his own colleagues described him as naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and uh, relentlessness, and he enjoyed playing the part of a brute uh, toward the Jews, especially since he had the backing of Rome with uh, Sejanus, uh, who was the nemesis uh, to the uh, emperor. Well, around the time of Jesus' trial before Pilate, his authority was starting to cave in. Uh, Sejanus, who tried to assert himself above the emperor, had fallen out of power. Uh, This made Pilate, who had sided with Sejanus uh, above the emperor, quite nervous about the conflict that was going on with the Jews. And perhaps for this reason, the Jews used the leverage of the statement in chapter 19 and verse 12, where they said, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And so they used that uh, in trying to have innocent Jesus Christ sentenced to crucifixion by 
uh, Pontius Pilate. And it's a fascinating that the conversation that we have here between Jesus Christ and Pilate uh, centered on the kingdom of Christ and his kingship. Uh, for Pilate had an insatiable desire to rule over everyone, yet he had no kingdom of his own. And he was merely a tool in the hands of the powerful Roman government. But that could not stifle his desires. Uh, burning in his mind was a thirsting for power and authority over others. And yet Jesus Christ stood before him with no wealth, no military backing, and claimed to be the king of another kingdom, one not of this world. And there's perhaps a bit of Pilate in all of us uh, in our unregenerate condition. When people are not saved, uh, within the heart of man is that desire to kind of rule at least the kingdom of his own life, uh, if not that of others. And some can mask this desire for self-rule while others display it by their grabbing of material gain and uh, vaunting themselves in pride and abusing others with words and actions. The warning of our text, though, is clear. To rule oneself means eternal death. Jesus Christ alone is to be the king over our lives. And so here Jesus Christ will exercise, uh, is exercised or letting people know he is uh, the king. He's letting Pilate know that. And the question would be, how does Jesus Christ exercise kingship uh, over our lives? We want to consider that this morning as we look at this text here in chapter 18, actually beginning in verse 36. Notice the nature of, of the kingdom in verse 36 the nature of the kingdom so jesus answered uh, he was answering pilate he said my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world then would my servants fight that i should not be delivered to the jews but now is my kingdom not from hence pilate asked Jesus, a series of questions, and some were probably kind of sarcastic in his asking of them. Others were more searching. But one exposes the emptiness of his heart, and that was the, the, uh, the question that he, he will ask in verse 38. What is truth? Uh, that uh, exposes the emptiness of his heart. Now, in the midst of these questions, we find our Lord explaining his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants, my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So I want you to notice the nature of this kingdom. First of all, it is present, not distant. It is present, not distant. One of the common problems I think Christians often have is thinking that Christ's kingdom is something way off into the future. Uh, it's, uh, we, kind of, we know that certainly one day he will reign one day in heaven. Uh, he's going to rule and reign on this earth. Then he's going to reign in heaven and often thought, well, that's his kingdom. But the emphasis of here in this text and even others uh, texts would say that the reign of Christ is not future but present. Uh, his kingdom does not encompass the future, but it also is fully active. Not only does it encompass the future, but is fully active in the present. And I find this expressed clearly by the words here of our text. My kingdom is not of this world. 
In other words, my kingdom is not of this realm. Uh, This is nothing here about the future kingdom. And yet it describes a different sort of kingdom than what that which Pilate was understanding. But in no way points only to the future. Or else Jesus would have said something like this. My kingdom shall not be of this world. He said my kingdom is. Demonstrates the present tense and the present tense status of the kingdom. And I believe this is an important matter for us to consider. Because so many people are looking for something better. Uh, Something in the days ahead. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Something in the future. And certainly the future in heaven will be much, much better. It's going to be glorious. But as Christians, we are to understand that the reign of Jesus Christ over our lives is not simply in heaven someday, but it's right now here on this earth. Now, why is that important to recognize? Well, there's a tendency among us to take the easy road or the road of least resistance. If we think that Jesus Christ exercising his kingly authority over us is only in the future, then we'll make two critical mistakes. First, we will deny the Lord who died for us so that he might reign as our king. And secondly, we will fail to live in the strength and grace which his kingship will supply. Instead of depending upon our own resources for living in this world. And so we must ask ourselves the question, are we living right now as though Jesus Christ is our king? Uh, Are we living as though we are part of another kingdom that will extend beyond this world into eternity and throughout eternity? I think there are some very practical issues for us to contemplate, to think about if we are to indeed living as though Jesus Christ is right now presently my king. First, I believe we must recognize the government of the kingdom of God. It's not a government of our own making. It's not a government of our own creative thought. It's a government that says Christ is the head and the word of God is our charter. There are no questions as to uh, how we are to live, for the king has given us the clear word on the kind of lives that should characterize kingdom people. And so we need to recognize the government of the kingdom of God. We need to recognize that he's given us the instructions for that kingdom. Secondly, we need to realize the purpose of the kingdom. We're not living unto ourselves. We're not creating our own agendas. We're to live for the glory of God. God is glorified when we find our greatest delights and satisfactions in him. This obviously will involve our worship, our obedience, our witness, our study, our prayer life. We must keep in mind that we are ambassadors for Christ's sake in both our lives as we live our lives and through our lips as what we say. Recognize the government of the kingdom of God. Realize the purpose of the kingdom. And thirdly, recognize the present reality of Christ's kingdom. In doing that, we must resolve to walk faithfully and loyally to our king. 
with our king. Think about how many people make gods out of rock stars these days or movie stars or perhaps even some politicians and they'll scream and they'll get all emotional just at the sight of them. They worship them. They think they're the greatest thing on earth. Some people even make pilgrimages to their birthplaces like uh, every year, like uh, Elvis Presley. They can be seen literally worshiping them as a god. Can we do less who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we must live like we belong to the kingdom of God. Because if we're born again, we do, not, we do belong to another kingdom. Notice, not only is it present, not distant, but it is spiritual, not physical. Christ's kingdom is not a physical kingdom like the one that Pilate viewed in his corner of the Roman Empire. Jesus states here, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from hence. It has no capital city somewhere on the globe, no senate, no pomp or circumstance of earthly kingdoms. It is a spiritual kingdom which will never pass away, which is not corruptible like the kingdoms of this world. John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's, it's in your midst. Jesus told the twelve apostles as they went out to preach, to declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jews understood that this was a part of the Old Testament teaching on the kingdom and God himself would come uh, uh, near to reign over his people. But the problem was that most of them thought God was coming to reign through Messiah as a physical, political arrangement rather than a spiritual kingdom. So they rejected the Messiah. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking for a kingdom that was limited by the physical and material world. But such a kingdom must dwell within the limits of time and space. Instead, a spiritual kingdom that affects man at the deepest core of his being, the very place in which he is a living soul, should be the greatest priority of our lives. You see, we're different from animals. I made mention of this Wednesday night when we talked about words. Uh, we're different from animals. We're not uh, created, uh, the animals were not created in the image of God. That implies a number of things that we're spiritual beings while animals have nothing related to spirituality. We have a distinct uh, personality. We have a capability to make rational decisions. We're created as a moral being. We've been given authority over creation. We have the capability of creativity. All of this is the legacy of being in the image of God. I don't want to pop your bubble. I don't want to say this with any animosity or any, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to get anybody upset. But I don't believe Fido and Felix are going to be in heaven with you. All right. Now, you can enjoy them while they're here on earth. Uh, but just say one day you're going to say goodbye and it's going to be bye forever. Okay. Enjoy them, but don't expect to see them in heaven. 
Now, I know one or two people would disagree on, with me with that. They have in the past anyway. But, uh, and you may disagree with that, but I don't believe animals are made in the image of God. They may be for our pleasure, but they're not uh, for our spiritual uh, encouragement and spiritual uh, edification. Someone as well stated, as the bearer of divine image, man is inescapably a religious being who, if he does not worship the true God, will idolatrously worship a false and finite God of his own imagination. And by turning away from God, by professing even to be an atheist, man does not cease to be a spiritual creature. And so by divine image, we have been given the personhood so that we might commune with the divine person through the faith through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now where does man place most of his energies? Well, he sets his heart and his affection upon the things of this world many times. He lives in the physical realm if not, as if nothing else exists. He may be a church uh, uh, attend church or maybe a member of religious body. But the reality of his life is that he is uh, that of denying God, denying that he is made in the image of God, denying that he's a chiefly a spiritual being. But you know what? The new birth changes all that. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Uh, and he, Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? How can I enter into my mother's womb? He was, Jesus was talking something spiritual, not physical. And when we enter into the Christ kingdom, we view life differently. We give a new priority to our spiritual values. We delight in life that we have in Christ. We discover that we can worship our God in spirit and in truth as spiritual beings who are a part of the spiritual kingdom that exists in the present age and continues into eternity. So it is spiritual, not physical. Thirdly, it is eternal, not temporal. I think the great danger that we face, even as believers, is to lose sight of the eternal nature of the kingdom so that we live as though everything is temporal. There's a sense in which any lapse into sin comes because we've lost sight of the eternal. How can we live with our affections set on things above, as it tells us in Colossians chapter 3, and yet plow the furrows of sin? The battle which rages in our mind and even in our culture can be seen in the fight uh, to be delivered from slavery to the temporal. We see this in the words of our Lord, If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. In other words, if the kingdom of Christ was simply temporal then his servants would have been doing everything they could to bring uh, and to hang on to it. And we just have to look at the many conflicts that take place in the name of religion internationally. Little countries and sometimes big countries uh, get into major conflicts when their kingdom status is threatened. Arms are taken up by an ordinary citizen to defend the kingdom status of his country. But you do not see that in Christ's kingdom. 
Now, there have been those times in history when a so-called Christian government tried to use military force to install a Christian kingdom upon unwanted citizens. But that is not the design of Christ's kingdom. It is the eternal kingdom that can be entered into only through the new birth and faith in Jesus Christ alone as our prophet, priest, and king. The king of our kingdom. Now while the world clamors for everything temporal, setting their affections on earthly treasures, living on uh, for the present day, worrying about what they're gonna, they have and what they, uh, what they don't have or how they're going to keep what they have, Consumed with pleasure, consumed with entertainment, Jesus lifts his people to a different realm. We live as those who are a part of an eternal kingdom, not a temporal, physical, material kingdom. We still live in this world. We enjoy its provisions. We realize, though, those things are temporary. They're passing away. This world with all its temporal treasures is nothing to cling to. You can't take it with you. The eternal kingdom is, of Christ is that which is spiritual. That which is eternal. It's not temporal. So that's the nature of the kingdom. But notice secondly this morning, the king of the kingdom. And here I want you to look in on verse 37 again. Verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. The kingdom of which we are a part of, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, has a king, and that is Jesus Christ himself, our Lord. Pilate longed to exercise kingly authority over Judea and the other lands, but standing before him was the king of the eternal kingdom whose domain covers the universe. So how does he describe himself as a king? Notice here how he describes himself. First of all, his uniqueness in his person. Unique in his person. Pilate asked the question, perhaps from a Uh, Maybe with a tinge of sarcasm here. I don't know. He looked upon his prisoner here and he said, Art thou a king then? Maybe Pilate even chuckled at first to think that this Jewish peasant, as he would have thought of Christ, considered himself to be a king. How could he consider himself to be a king? Well, Jesus explains, Thou sayest that I am a king. In other words, Pilate, at least you've gotten one thing right. I am a king. Now, I know we've grown up, and of course, since history is your favorite subject, you've studied all the kings over time. You know, multiple kings by the name of George. Uh, there was a King George at, during the time of the uh, War for Independence here when we, uh, we were being independent, becoming independent from King George of England. Uh, there were the Louis, the Louis the. 13th, 14th, and how many ever, ever far it went. Uh, there was uh, Henry, Henry VIII, and so forth. And uh, there was King James, a number of them. Okay? But we have only one king. And that's Jesus Christ. All of those kings came into the world the same way. 
The same way we came into the world. Through birth. No one here had a pre-existence before birth. You came into this world by birth. But Jesus Christ, though, is different. He says here, To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world. Now that statement describes the uniqueness of this person as king of an eternal kingdom. I want you to notice, first of all, he describes his birth. He was born into this world, born of Mary in the city of Bethlehem. But his birth was unique, for he existed eternally. He is the infinite God who had no beginning, no end. So to be born, Jesus had to come into this world. He came from the throne of God. He entered into time and humanity through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary without contribution from man. He came into this world as God. And He is God, eternally existent. He came into this world to become a man for the purpose of redemption of sinners that He might become the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But notice, secondly, for Jesus to come into the world implies a purpose for his coming. Well, there are many groups that claim Jesus came to, you know, he came to live a good example. Uh, he came to do good for humanity. Uh, but, you know, the Lord says something different. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, according to Luke 19 and verse 10. He came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, Mark 2, 17. He came to give life and to give it more abundantly, John 10, 10. He came as the bread of God from heaven to give life to sinners in John 8. Paul said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, and Jesus said of himself that he came to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20 and verse 28. Now, why did he come into the world? Well, the answer of the scriptures is very clear. He came to bear our sins in his own body on the cross that we might be justified before God and brought into a relationship of righteousness with him. He came as the Lamb of God who would atone for our sins. He came to bear the judgment of God against us because of the curse of the fall and our own sinfulness. And Pilate did not understand this, but it's still true. The question we must face is, do we recognize who Jesus is and why he came to earth? Have we embraced Jesus Christ by faith in him and his atoning work on behalf of sinners? So we notice he was unique in his person, but he was unquestioning in his rule. You see, to say yes to that last question I ask, have we embrace Jesus Christ by faith in him and his atoning work on behalf of sinners implies that we know Christ is our king. Jesus stated clearly, I am a king, but whose king is he? He is the king of those whom he died and to who have put their faith and their trust in him alone. Yes, he is king of kings, but the kings of this earth have not, not acknowledged his kingship. It is those who have faith in Christ, who have recognized him as king, all others will one day bow before his throne in judgment. And we must not lose sight of the practical implications of Jesus' kingship over our lives. 
When we come to faith in Christ, we come to him as our prophet, priest, and king. Now, you probably noticed that I've used that those three words a number of times in our study of the book of John, haven't I? The prophet, priest, and king. He alone has the words of life. That's our prophet. He alone is the mediator between God and man. That's our priest. And he alone died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living as our king. As our king, Jesus Christ exercises daily rule over our lives. We do not make him king over our lives. He is king. Sometimes people have uh, have used that phraseology to say, make the Lord king of your life. (laughs) Well, he is king. It implies that we must submit to him in obedience and service. It means that we seek to live only to him, to glorify him in all that we do. And I believe that all of us would have to admit that we sometimes have difficulty in our submission and our obedience to him as our king. Sometimes we get lax, we get lazy. Perhaps we slip into self-centeredness so that we live as though we are the king of our lives. Listen, does this not shame you as it does me to think that we would dare live one moment for ourselves when our Lord Jesus Christ, our King, has redeemed us from the slavery of sin by His own blood? We do not have a tyrannical despot who mercilessly dictates His selfish ways over us. We have Him who is selfless, who emptied himself for our sakes to make uh, take on humanity, who fulfilled the demands of the law on our behalf, who endured the agony and the divine judgment which we deserve, who conquered death and all of its fears, who sits at the right hand of God where he tenderly intercedes for us. This is our king. Do we dare live our lives as though he's not our king? The reign of Jesus Christ over our lives has a multitude of practical applications. By God's grace, we're to live every moment in glad submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live with our passion for our King, to honor Him with our lips, our actions, our relationships, our ambitions, our goals, our attitudes. We do not do this in order to receive eternal life from Him. That's already been provided. Eternal life is provided through his atoning death. We must respond to him, though, in repentance and faith. And upon receiving eternal life, it does not leave us without further responsibility. We cannot rightly claim to know Jesus Christ and yet have no concern for living under his kingly rule, his kingly authority. Those whom he justifies, he sanctifies. He so rules over us as our fatherly king and treats us as his children. And for such we are, so that he disciplines us that we might share his holiness. Now later in chapter 19, to the Jews, Pilate's going to present Jesus Christ and say, Behold your king. And they're going to respond with anger. Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. For that was probably more a confession than anything else. 
We have no king but Caesar. But I'm asking this morning, who is your king? Who is your king? Who rules over your life? Who has your chief affections? To whom do you devote your energy and direct your life? I say, this is your king. Look at King Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world. The only way to enter this kingdom is through the blood of the king. As you embrace him and his saving work by faith, he never saves anyone to play second fiddle in their life. No, he's to be the exalted king. His kingship is actual in its practice. And I close this morning by turning to Hebrews chapter 12, where we find the reality of being in the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12. I invite you to turn there with me for a moment as we close. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Find the reality of being in the kingdom and living under the authority of Christ expressed in very vivid language here. I want you to listen to the writer's description and let us all heed his warnings. Romans 12, beginning verse 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned and thrust in, uh, through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come into Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. And now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of things that are shaken as of the things that are made, that those things which are cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, words that should be words of warning to us. Who is your king this morning? Is Jesus Christ your king? Does he rule in your life? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven.